today, continuing our, our, our study. We've been dialoguing through this critical idea about what it means to sow to the Spirit and not to your own flesh. And this is part and parcel, this, this verse we've been looking at, these sets of verses anyways over these past weeks, for the way Paul writes the book of Philippians. He seems to have a, a bend, at least in this book, to drop these incredibly profound ideas in like two to three sentences. And then he just moves on. And so you've probably noticed that we've, we've been moving on much more slowly than the Apostle Paul is. Because when he makes a statement about like not putting confidence in the flesh, but putting it in the Holy Spirit, which is how we inaugurated this section of teaching a few weeks ago, he then says that and then moves on. What we want to do is begin bringing some definitional clarity to what that actually means. So today, we're going to continue to look at this idea of sowing to the Spirit, investing in your life in ways that actually help you to grow in Christ. And that's an incredibly important command that we have. Connected to the book of Philippians, we learn that we, we actually cannot have the joy of Jesus in our lives with, without it. And so this, this little mini-series within the series has been addressing this idea of sanctification, how we grow in our love for following Jesus in all areas of life. And doing so, the, the simple theological equation here is that by sowing to the Spirit, by investing in our faith, by trusting in the promises of God, something unique begins to happen in our lives. That is, we grow into the image of Jesus, but we also begin to tap into that unassailable joy Paul promises us in the first two chapters of Philippians. The book is written pretty clearly. He, he really digs into some profound spiritual realities in the Christian faith. And then on the back end of the book starts talking about the way life should look once we have owned those realities in our head, in our hearts, and are living them out with our hands. So as promised today, we're going to talk about the role a church family plays in sowing to the Spirit in our lives. Last week I introduced three ideas to you about uh, critical rhythms for sowing to the Spirit. Uh, being in the Word, being in prayer, and certainly having some type of a, you know, in a colloquial sense, we'd call it a support network for the faith. But by support network, we mean the men and women who God has put into our lives to walk with us and for us to walk with them. That requires a level of humility here that I really feel like is imperative for somebody to grow. By humility, it mean, I mean for us to be like Jesus, we have to be at a place in our lives where we can be walked with. We have invited others into our lives, but we have also placed just as great a priority with walking with other people. That is the, the continuum of discipling, if you will, invested in and investing in others. And so in light of that reality, and if you've been a restorationer for a while, you will know sort of where I'm going to go right now. Whenever we talk about church community, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, 28 examples in scripture, we'll talk about a few this morning. Whenever we talk about the body, God's people gathered, we always talk about this idea, this idea of what it means to be a people who who are for one another. A church family okay, that is committed to following Jesus has to have in their head, heart, and hands this idea of, of one another. And that is because, theologically speaking, when you become a Christian, you are immediately woven into the tapestry of the body of Christ. And it's really on two levels. The first is the, the grand level of the church, meaning like past, present, and future. You are a part of the body of Christ, and that spans millennia and will continue to spend millennia until Jesus returns. You are immediately put into that, that, that position, Jesus says. But we're called to flesh out that grand eos idea of the church in these local bodies. And that's why in the book of Acts, you'll see, you'll see this concept of the church developing, right? The, the church, capital C, all around the world. It's, it's in its embryonic roots, but nonetheless is beginning to spread. And then as you move through the New Testament, you'll see the church starts to gather in very specific 
bodies of people. The church at Galatia, the church at Philippi, the church at Ephesus. So there are these two layers to the church. You're immediately redeemed into one of the layers and then called to flesh your life out in the layer that we have here. Okay. So the point I'm trying to make here is that how we value one another, how we care for one another is one of the greatest evidences of sowing to the Spirit, and it's also one of the greatest evidences of the fact that we, we are in Jesus. And so, I want to ask you this morning to meditate on what I'm about to read to you. However you meditate in life, that's your call. If you want to close your eyes and think, and pray, if you want to keep your eyes open and look at me, whatever you want to do, it's fine. But I just really want you to tune your head and your heart into what I'm about to say. And I'm going to read a very abbreviated list of how Scripture describes this one another relationship we are to have with each other here. So close your eyes or pray or do whatever you can do right now, okay? Love one another. Encourage one another. Be devoted to one another. Build up one another. Be kind to one another. Accept one another. Serve one another. Have concern for one another. Confess your sins to one another. Forgive one another. Teach and admonish one another. Pray for one another. Don't judge one another or deprive one another. Do not gossip against one another. And ultimately, do all of this because in Jesus you, you now belong to each other. Now, that's a partial list of values. But you can see that in them all is this idea of being invested in and investing in others. And this is what, you know, theologically we call the one another. There's a long list of them. And if you've never spent any time examining them, it's really a good pursuit in your life. It's a good use of your time because you'll find that pressing into them actually benefits you on every relational level you have. They are God's expectation for how he desires us to treat one another. And I'll tell you, sowing to them pleases God. It sanctifies us and it has this unique ability um, to build the body. Transgressing them, on the contrary, has the exact opposite effect. And so in a case like this, what we, what we talk about today is the distinction between faithfulness and fruitfulness. We are to be faithful to the ideas we're going to talk about today. We can't demand fruit out of them, meaning you can actually care for people like this, love people, and they might not actually reciprocate that. But that's not the point of these passages. The point is that fidelity in these ideas, these truths, is what God asks of us. And what we'll find is that over time, if we can be faithful, this is true with all scripture, if we're faithful to what God calls, he will bring fruitfulness out of that. It might not always be the way we expect it, want it, or desire it, but nonetheless, he promises to bring fruit out of the lives of those who press into his son, Jesus. Okay? So there's the general idea of the one another's. Now contrast this, if you will, for a moment, with God's rich and beautiful relational expectations in the Bible for us, with the way that a great many people in our current Christian culture see their role, nature, individual, and corporate identity in the body of Christ. This is an alternative list, if you will, of, of one another's that is as pervasive in the church world today as, as are the biblical ones I just mentioned. And it goes something like this. I worship at my church on occasion with one another, or I seldom, if ever, serve another. I unashamedly go to multiple churches infrequently at the expense of, of all the others. Uh, I have absolutely no need for any other. Oh, I like to complain about all the others and, and how things were so much better at another place and season and historical point in, in my life. Or the idea is I really value the ideal, I-D-E-A-L, not the idea, the ideal of the one another's. Unfortunately, I do it at the expense of the reality of, of walking with one another, meaning the one another's are no longer a, a rhythm to press into. They become a, a bludgeoning tool we use to, 
to hurt each other. We, we constantly use them as a litmus test and give people failing grades in their lives. And we push them into rhythms of shame and defeat as opposed to calling them into a deeper level of love and uh, understanding of who Jesus is. So make no bones about it. When we talk about this beautiful idea of the one another's, it is an idea that is contested today in many circles, not all of them. And I'm thankful this is not a primary rhythm at our church. That's why we want to talk about these things so it never becomes one. The unfortunately common but alternate list of non-biblical one another's are a prevalent set of attitudes in the modern church world. And they will actually hurt the heart of God. And as we'll soon see, they reveal a much deeper heart issue in the person who believes them. Because ultimately, this is a matter of self-reliance. These attitudes actually sow to the flesh. They, they remove the spirit and the tools he says he wants to use in our lives. We just kind of we shelve them and pursue our own rhythms. And that's a bit of a problem. Because as you know, the nature of discipling, the nature of being a disciple, is to follow Jesus. It's to see him as Lord. And so you can only have one Lord in your life when it comes to this type of idea. And to sow to the Spirit means we embrace the ideas of the Spirit. We follow the promptings and the leading of the Spirit. And we reorient our lives around what He says we should do in the name of Jesus. And so today, in a pointed way, I hope to make a case from the Bible for why it is so important for us to, to engage the body of Christ. To be a person who is walking with and being walked with by other people. It is according to Scripture and the name and the words of Jesus... It is a non-negotiable, but it is very negotiable in the lives of a great many people. So here's the first thing I want to share with you this morning, as far as the, the, the rudder as I'd like us to apply to our lives. If you want to sow seeds to the Spirit, right, that's the whole premise of what Paul is saying in Philippians. He's saying, listen, uh, if anybody could put a confidence in themselves about how they could know and follow God and be great in life, it was me. That's why he gives us that laundry list, that resume of all his accomplishments. But he goes on to say, but none of this, you have to understand, none of this is actually as good as pursuing Jesus. So don't sow to yourself, sow to the Spirit. And in order to sow seeds for who God wants you to make you tomorrow, that's the point of this. Sowing seeds today creates who you are tomorrow. In order to sow seeds for who God wants to make you tomorrow, you have to be a vital, viable part of a church family today. And here's where our secondary verse comes into play. Acts twenty twenty-eight. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Now, Luke wrote the book of Acts. Okay, So here in Acts, we have, uh, this is a sharp guy who is penning the early chapters of the early church. And Luke's teaching here gives us the most compelling reason as to why a disciple must place a high value on the church in their life. And there are two general ideas that come out of this very short verse here. They're teaching us two profound things. The first is, if you back this up and, and read it in context, obviously we're looking at one excerpt of a larger chapter, what you'll find is that this is a very broad charge given to the people in the church. It is a charge to pastors and elders and leaders and really every Christian in the church, okay? But particularly the church leadership here, here it talks about guarding self. It talks about recognizing the, the flock nature of the body, the familial nature of the body. And the, the general challenge here is that whenever we think about the church corporately, we should always be thinking about ourselves individually. Those two things coincide with each other. Who we are as individuals, I said this three weeks ago, who we are as individuals makes up a body corporately. Right? You, don't, you cannot disconnect the two. So there's, a, there's this great charge to always be examining self, recognizing that before the Lord we are right with him, we are right with each other. There's a great desire to sow healthy rhythms into our lives today in order to see fruitfulness in them tomorrow. 
I thought that was a great idea, but only John does, apparently. You don't even know who amen, but that's him right there. Thank you, John. He's a guaranteed amen. Come, you should come sit right here with me, man. <laughs> that's the first thing we see here. The second one is just as profound, and it is our fo- focus today. We're told the reason we're to place such a high value on, the, on being a part of the church and cherishing it is because, forget the benefits for a moment, friendships, relationships, exhortation and encouragement, challenge growth, all beautiful promises. But the foundational, the foundation those promises and benefits are built on is because Luke tells us we should care about the church because Jesus spilled his blood for it. I mean, that's, that's the root right there, right? It's very easy to say we should do this, 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 and this. And the truth is we should do those things. We'll talk about some of them this morning. But if we do them disconnected from this root, the church birthed and established, bought and built on the blood of Jesus, will never have the long-term motivation indwelled by the power of the Spirit to actually live consistently in this area. And so I guess if you take one thing away from today, this reason alone should be enough to expose the cheapened nature of that alternate list of one another's that some adhere to today. It's really hard to see the magnitude, the level of sacrifice that Jesus applies in his own life to make this for us. And then to treat it that way. So verses like this are where we derive our understanding of what the church is. What we call ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is like all the ology words, both in the scripture and even outside of the scripture. There is a combination of two words, often Greek. And in this case, they are Greek. The first is the word ecclesia. And that is a very general word used in the New Testament that refers to a gathering or it's the idea of a, of a group of people called out into something. And ecclesia really had no boundary. And ecclesia, by first century standards, could be described as a political affiliation, a, a social club. It was some common thing that people were called out of and into. So you're in a car club, or you're a Republican, or a Democrat, or you love sports, you're in a football club, whatever it is, your, your, your identity and vocation. The ecclesia is a general term. But when you take that general term and marry it to what we're talking about in Scripture, the term gets very, very, very specific. The second part of the word comes from the word lagos, which means to study. And so s- simply put, what we're talking about today is ecclesiology is the study of the people who have been called out by Jesus. Because in the Christian context, we are absolutely called out of something in life. But we're called into a very particular affinity, if you will. And that affinity is our Savior. And so ecclesiology simply means how do we, with one another, follow the one who has become our Lord once we place our faith and life in him. This is a very long-winded way of saying the church that's what the church means and is. It is much more than just 60 minutes on Sunday or community groups throughout the week. Those are incredibly valuable. There are high values here. But the church is much, much, much deeper and broader and substantive than just these, these waypoints we have. It is a, it's a communal body. In the same way you would say like your family, right? Think about your biological family. You get together with them. And you might have supper with them. And if you have children, you're driving them to school. There are these like hardened touch points of things you do with your family. But your family is your family even when you're not together like that. It's a much deeper implication than just those, those significant waypoints. And so practically speaking, the Bible fleshes out ecclesiology for us in some very clear ways. And it is very cool today. I've said this before, especially when we've talked about individualism and autonomy and that bend our Western world has. It is very cool, hip today. To be Christian and not need the church. But I'm telling you that is actually not found anywhere in the Bible. In fact, you will find contrarian teachings, hardened teachings to the exact opposite. That's a perfect example of sowing into the flesh. 
A person who draws a conclusion like this about their faith is, is going to sow to the flesh, not the spirit or the teachings of their shepherd, Jesus. Now, that's not to say we don't have questions about the church. It's not to say we don't grow in the body. These are all things we're going to touch on here at the back end. But it is to say that for those in Jesus, particularly those in Jesus, the default of who we are should be bent towards this. And so let's take some time to look at just two very common relational metaphors the Bible uses to describe the church. We have this word in Scripture. We see it fleshed out in particular bodies of faith in the New Testament. We see it fleshed out in bodies today. The church at Restoration, our sister church in Daytona, Christ Community. Three weeks ago, I was with Divine Church in Madison, a sister church we have. And then I was with Redeemer City, another sister church we have just outside of Madison. This is all the church, but these churches gather in local congregations, right? So the first metaphor is that the people of the church are called the family of God. This is a major metaphor strewn all throughout the Bible. And think about it in light of our church. When you live in a family, you live in a tight relational proximity with other people. You have brothers and sisters and cousins and mothers and aunts. I'm telling you, I have uh, very, very, very profound memories of my childhood in Brooklyn where for our holidays and weekends, we would gather at my, my grandparents' house. I had two sets of grandparents, obviously. Um, one side died very young. And then the other side, I, I still have the privilege of having a grandfather. My grandmother passed away two years ago. But I can remember our whole family coming from all over New York to Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, and basically clustering. I'm pretty sure we were violating a, a fire hazard at this point. But there were like 65 Italian and Irish people packed in my grandmother's living room, like Christmas time especially. There would be more presents in the living room than you could actually, you couldn't even stand in there. And my cousins and I would fight, and we would argue, and then throw footballs out front, and we would eat, and then we would all go home. And the, the, the idea of that, of, of this, the family, is, is very strong in my mind. And it's very strong in Scripture. So think about your family. You have these people in your life, brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, that, that create this healthy dynamic. They should anyways. I realize not all families are healthy, but when they're functioning the way God wants them to be, they are imperfect but very important relationships we have in our life. It's a deep dynamic, right, this relational structure. And it causes us to develop a, a deep and selfless, sacrificial level of love for another. You, your family does anything for you. They laugh with you. They will cry with you. They will love you and support you. They will suffer for you and with you and, and be in your life and engage you about the heart stuff. I can't remember my grandmother. This is a true story. Not even in my nose. It just came to my head. But my grandmother was obsessed with her couches. And so at a very young age, we learned to respect stuff. Because in this day, both my grandmothers, they had the right to like backhand us in the back of the head, just like my parents did. And so my grandmother had these white couches and like none of the kids were allowed to touch them or sit on them or be even within like 10 feet of them. And that part I get. But what I didn't get is like they were also covered in plastic. OK, so it's like even if we attempted to, we couldn't stain them. And if you sat on them and stood up, it would rip the hair off of your back like they were you would you would fuse to the plastic. That's how hard they were. So, you, I mean, that's a, it's a strong memory in my head, but it's kind of funny that over time I learned, like, those things really matter to my grandmother. And I actually could care less about the couches. But because they mattered to my grandmother, they started mattering to me. And it started shaping my life. I, I learned to care about things that weren't even things I cared about. And that's a rhythm that we grow in, right? Think about that. Sometimes you embrace things or you're a part of things, not because you even like them, but because you want to be engaged with the people who they value, uh, who, who value those same things. And the end result in all of this, all these dynamics, which I am in a very trivial way touching on this morning, they create this familial dynamic 
that starts to create a lasting and meaningful family relationship. Over time, the weirdness, the challenges, the confrontation, the quirks, the idiosyncrasies, the good, the bad, it all makes you better and closer and stronger. And then you have your own kids one day and I yell at them for touching my TV. I could care about less about the couches, but when there's fingerprints on my TV, I go ballistic, right? So my grandmother and me. Now, while you certainly have an individual identity in the family, right? You don't only have an individual identity in the family. That would be considered an unhealthy family. You also have a role and a responsibility to the larger family. And it is why family members would give the shirt off their back to care for one another. It's why a parent, for those of you who are parents, will make great sacrifices uh, for their kids in life to succeed. And if you have parents, they've likely made great sacrifices for you. It's why a sibling will come to the defense of another in their hour of need. Life in the family is rooted in one key idea, mutual love and sacrifice for one another. It's rooted in both giving and getting, not just getting. And over time, and because of that hard attitude, the family begins to share a common set of values, goals, and ideals with one another. That is one of the marks of a healthy family. We express it in individual ways. We have our own nuances as we grow old. But to a certain degree, the core things that matter in a family matter for the whole family. That same familial dynamic is what Jesus says should be present amongst the family of God in the church. The church, capital C, meaning we're all bound around a certain set of ideas and truths in a person. But the local church should have some image reflection of that. And so here's the point in this. We do live in a world where many people, they, they just value autonomy over, over community. Uh, they, they value individualism over community. In many ways, this is a sad testimony, and sometimes it's true, but sometimes it's actually not true. There are reasons why people might have skepticism towards organized religion. There's some junky stuff out there, but not everything's a junky thing out there. And so sometimes the person who comes into this room, within, within a, uh, they have some kind of an opposition towards organized faith, they might need to examine the local body before they begin to label stereotypes across the whole body, like you know, past, present, and future. In this area, no matter where the tension point is, you're for community, you're not for it, you're skeptical of it, the bottom line is for those of you seeking to, to pursue Jesus, the idea that he wants us to know is there's an indivisible connection between following Jesus and being deeply connected to a church body. And the point of Acts, the point of what Luke is saying is that we start to cheapen the nature of the blood of Jesus who established this when we don't treat it like that. And if you are at a place in your life where this, the profound sacrifice and love Jesus has shown you, has shown me, when we say that, when I say that Jesus' blood is cheapened, that should hurt a little bit here. That's one of the evidences that, that we actually are deeply engaged with Jesus. In the same way when your kid suffers, it hurts you a little bit. That's the tie. That's the bind. Or you see a parent suffering. Something happens in here that, that shows that you're alive. The same is true in the, the church family. We should, we should grieve a little bit when we see this in people's lives or have it in our own. The church is a family. The second metaphor Colossians gives us, uh, and I, I'll mention Colossians particularly in Colossians 1 and 2. I won't read the verses. I'll just give you the general nature. Is that the people of the church are many members in one body. And this is also another theme that's very present in the New Testament. And this is also another interesting way to describe us. Because again, the Bible's making this indivisible uh, covenantal connection between receiving Jesus as Lord and Savior, understanding who he is and pursuing him, and being immediately woven into the tapestry of the rest of the body of Christ. In other words, you're in Jesus whether you like it or not. I said that earlier. You're automatically a part of the body of Christ. Whether or not you press into that rhythm is another story. And the reason we can say this confidently is 
we are identified as critical organs that keep the body alive. Now, contrary to popular belief today, the Bible is pretty clear when it comes to Christianity that we are not redeemed into some vacuum of spiritual ambiguity. That's a, that's a popular thing today. Uh, it's what Paul would say, like the always searching and always looking, but actually never finding or arriving at any place in your life. When it comes to Christianity, there is an immeasurable amount of mysticism and, and, and grandness of who God is. In one sense, he's utterly unknowable. But in the same sense, he is utterly knowable. And there is a mystery even in that. But the truth here is that God is not so mysterious that you cannot know him personally or engage him with his people. So ambiguity is seldom where God wants us to be. And if you find yourself, that's what I said earlier, having ambiguity in an area of your life. You, you're trying to talk to people about Christ but don't know how. You've got a personal issue you're wrestling with. There's a theological or a cultural issue. Where there is gray and ambiguity in your life, God wants to provide you clarity. And the body is one of the places where we get this. We are actually redeemed not into ambiguity, but into a clear and defined body of believers, each with certain gifts, abilities, and responsibilities given to us by God for the sake of the body and the furtherment of the name of Jesus. We are literally grafted into a, a unified body. That's what this analogy in Colossians tells us, of truth and love in which Jesus is the Lord in the head. And no matter whether you are a toe or a kidney or a lung or a brain, different, different gifts and uses, you're all vital. Everything matters. Everything you are deeply and distinctly matters to who God is and what he wants you to be. So this is why it is important when, when we talk about sowing to the Spirit. If you want to grow in Jesus, if you want to be sustained in Jesus, if you want your root to be in Jesus, it always comes through these three main areas. Now there are lots of strings that dangle from them, but the three headings are simple. You have to know the truth in the Bible. So what I'm telling you today, I'm teaching on truths. These are not my ideas, they're God's ideas. We have to know that truth. We have to pray for God to make those truths a reality in our life. And then we have to live that truth out with others who love Jesus in a church family. That's what we're talking about today, is the loving Jesus part, living the, living the life out with other people. And it is for this reason that the Bible places such a great emphasis on every member, every believer, every partner, finding their place in the body, using their gifts to forward the mission of the church, and Colossians tells us explicitly the reason we do this is because even though we all have different parts and we're all different organs, there is actually only one head. That's the one portion of Jesus we're not given. We, we exercise his gifts and abilities, teaching, uh, exhortation. Uh, all, of these, all of these gifts in Scripture are things Jesus did. The spiritual gifts are who he was. And he gives them to us. And as we corporately work together as a body, we actually represent Jesus somewhat perfectly, except in one area. We don't represent him as the head, because the head is just the head. I speak, if you will, on behalf of you this morning from the head. And that is why it's so important that if you're in Jesus, you recognize what the head says. You have to know his truth and his words. And here, using your time, your talent, your God-given ability, your treasures, your resources for the glory of God and the good of your neighbor, they matter. And the way you serve your brother and sister, and the way you serve those who are not even yet your brother and sister in Jesus. And so each one of these metaphors has a deep implication that points to a mutual covenant commitment. It points to a deep desire to walk with people and be walked with by others. A good example is when you're stressed, like I could say literally, there are verses that say you should not be stressed. Now, if, if, if next week you came here and, and we announced on Facebook this week, next week Pastor Anthony is going to be talking about how to not be stressed. And you showed up here and we did worship and you drank your coffee and I got up in here and said, the Gospel of Matthew says, don't be stressed. And I prayed and went home. You would never come back to this place again, right? Ever. Because the truth is, you need another space to process that. You might hear that, but you know that you leave this place still a little stressed. 
That's the point of what I'm saying here is that it isn't just we say it and then you go home. The idea is that there are other people who are to be here with you and you're to be here for them to work these things out. We're to, we're to be committed to each other and living, point three, living these ideas out, fleshing these truths out. Now, we've only looked at two analogies in the Bible, but I can tell you no matter which one we look at, they're all going to communicate the same thing. In Scripture, we're called the bride. We're called uh, a, a growing harvest field of wheat. It's not like we're individual stalks. We are a bunch of stalks that make up a field. We use the term gospel partnership here. Early in the, uh, the, the book of Philippians, we talked about this idea. Partners, plural, in the gospel, and that list goes on. They all communicate that we're more than just individuals in God's eyes. We are valued individuals. From head to toe, as individuals, we are loved by God and cared for by God. But we're not the only ones loved by God and cared for by God. That love is also bestowed upon a family, a covenant community, if you will. And we're called to contribute to the health of the church globally. That's why some of us do overseas stuff, and you, you support people with your time and your money. You're, you're, you're functioning on both levels, and I think it's wonderful. You're committed to the church, capital C, but you're also committed to the church, lowercase c, your local church body, the one you call home. Because while you might send resources to East Africa, you can't necessarily live life with the people in East Africa. Not because there's a lack of desire, it's just that you can't get on that plane every day. You want to have a cup of coffee with somebody to talk about the challenges you're having in your marriage or your job or your workplace. Unless you're very wealthy. And if you are, then you need to contribute to our building fund because we're, we're trying to get out of this movie theater. Or at least take one of us with you to see Africa. It'd be awesome. So the beauty here is that God's grace is meant for us individually and us as, as a family. And it's also meant for others that are not even in the family. Our, our love and care for each other is meant to be shown to those who are not even in the body yet. And this is best seen in this initial band of brothers we call the disciples. Right? So we're talking about discipling here and everything goes back to the root. Think about the disciples. They are individually following Jesus. They, each one of them have been touched and called by God individually. He ecclesias them, you know, putting a verb form there. He pulls them out of their life and says, follow me as individuals. And then he shoves them into a room together. And creates a new family called the disciples, right? Individually following Jesus, but immediately bound to each other for the sake of following Jesus. It has always been this way. And while in our modern culture, we tend to overemphasize the personal side of this relationship, we have just seen that the Bible regularly describes this as a communal relationship. And so I hope today you will balance the scales. And in some senses, maybe just completely blur them. That's probably a better way to look at it. You are in the body you are one in the body, and the body is really one in you. So how people can kind of arrive at this place where they don't, they might read about the blood of Jesus or hear about it, or they have some misconstrued ideas, how they get to the place where church, and by church, hear me now, I'm talking about the capital C, lowercase c, how, how it can be reduced to something that is so trivial is really hard to reconcile with the Bible. And the exhortation I give you here with this first idea is to make sure that if this is in your heart, that you ask God why. Because it's very important that you, you don't press into that. In doing so, you will sow into the flesh. And when you sow into the flesh, you will move away from the Spirit. And when you move away from the Spirit, you will move away from Jesus. And that seldom, if ever, happens in very uh, profound ways. It usually happens in very slow, incremental ways. And then you just wake up one day very far from God. Most of you are too wise in the faith to fall off the deep end. But if you, if you kind of you know, meander your way out that way for several years, you'll find yourself in it one morning. And this really leads me to the second truth I want to share with you this morning. When you place a low worth on the church family in your life, 
you will greatly impede your ability to sow to the Spirit. I'll reread Acts 20, 28. Be shepherds of the church of God, which Jesus bought with his own blood. Now, I want to say this, that it is pretty natural, and I would say expected, and that God has a great place in his life. All people are expected to start with a confused belief about the church. However, God doesn't want you to stay there. So even the nature of a teaching like this is not meant to use on one another in a way to make you feel bad. It's designed to say this is really God's expectation. But God is a good God, and he knows that we have not been living up to his expectations forever. And that's why there is love and truth and grace here. So you have to know that God expects this. And truly, if you are in Jesus and mature, you should expect not everybody to be where Jesus wants them to be because we're not where Jesus wants us to be in all areas of our lives. And so this is not like a polemic against not knowing. Uh, The part of discipling is helping people know and to live this. The point I want to make here is that there's a deeper issue here, perhaps the one I'm more concerned with, a bigger concern that exists in the modern church culture. And it is not necessarily the volume of people in the, the Christian camp who have misinformed views in the church, It's that some people have actually just made those misinformed views their views. In other words, what they have landed on, what they have found now is that what is an unhealthy truth about the body is now their only truth. They've gotten comfortable in the lie, essentially. And so a professing Christian who believes this way, on one hand, will claim to follow Jesus, but oftentimes has a heart that seems to be okay with sowing to the flesh or the desires of the spirit, which Paul has pretty aggressively condemned. And they are often committed to following their own version of truth. That's where this ends up. Because it's very easy to to make up your own faith as you go along if you're on a solo faith journey. And so the reason I say this attitude is sowing to the flesh is because a person who places little or no value in knowing Jesus in the Bible, fleshing these truths out amongst other people and, and trying to really process them in life, what ends up happening is un, unaccountability. And I don't, I've already talked about accountability a few weeks ago. There's a a very unhealthy hard edge to that in our modern world. But by accountable, I mean they no longer have a head. head, Well, they have a head. It's just no longer Jesus. The head is now themselves. And so they wind up in the name of Christianity missing much of the heart of the Christian faith, which is rooted in sacrifice and selflessness. They can't grow as God wants them to because they've, they've insulated themselves from the tools that God has given them to grow. His word, his people, and life. So you couple this with the values of Western culture, where individualism and autonomy rule the day, and it starts to make perfect philosophical sense as to why so many people see their faith as only something personal. But the more you get to know the words of Jesus, the more you'll see this isn't right, right? I mean, just think of the cross itself. If Jesus is only about personal faith, he doesn't do what he does for us. He does what he does for himself. There is no Jesus on the cross without this this gospel principle. And there is no principle in our lives with the gospel unless Jesus is working in this area and we're receptive to his leading. And so the foot of the cross It begins there, it ends there, we go back there. The gospel is what we believe and return to for truth and viability in life. The foot of the cross is the place where this relational inconsistency is most pointedly revealed. Because it is there that Jesus spills his blood to forge the kind of church family Luke is talking about in Acts and the one we're talking about this morning. It is there that he sets this new standard. It is a standard that is derived from heaven. And it is supposed to be shaping all of our relationships on earth. And imperfect and broken ways. There's no ideal in what I'm saying right now. But I am saying when we think relationship and community, we should be looking to our Father in heaven. That's the, that's the root of what shapes us. It is the pace car for healthy relationships. It is supposed to be the driving impetus for how we care for and love one another. And that requires us at times to step into some very challenging rhythms. We have to be long-suffering with each other. We have to care for each other. We have to love each other. We have to be available for each other at inconvenient times, right? And we have to, to a certain degree, expect that from other people. There has to be a communal love for each other. 
Because the way we function in this room and as a people is actually one of the ways God is trying to reveal himself to the world. According to the scripture, good ecclesiology says that Jesus put the church on earth because in part we're supposed to be a, a glimpse of heaven. Think about that. We're supposed to, in part and parcel, reveal some of the way it's going to be for all of eternity when there is no more sin and suffering and trial. As we labor through those rhythms, we find, we find the light in Jesus Christ. And that light shapes who we are and it, it, it portrays a new image, a new way of thinking about life. And it is at the foot of, cross, of the cross that Jesus proclaims this to the world. And he tells us that for the Christian, we cannot be bound by any other worldly structures. Our relationships and community cannot be defined by the structures of the world, which is something we talked about last week. The world simply means anything that is opposed to the ways of God. So what this means is when we think about how we gather and congregate, when we think about relationships and people, when we think about some of the unhealthy worldly structures that have been hurting people for millennia, things like ethnicity, family pedigree, skin color, social stature. You might remember Jesus was actually not believed to be the Messiah because he did not have the rabbinical pedigree that the, that the rabbis thought he should have. So basically the son of God in their eyes can't be the son of God because he doesn't meet up to their social expectations. Talk about missing it, right? Religious status, age, affluence, poverty, none of these things, Jesus says, should define my people. What should define us? His blood. My grace, he says, right? We are birthed, in, birthed from the blood of Jesus. The identity of follower of Jesus, Christian, disciple, those categories, they truly define all the other categories. That's what happens. And when you function as a disciple in your ethnicity, in your family pedigree, with your skin color, with your social status, with your religious status, with your age, your poverty, when, when that shapes those things, you're going to start to see Jesus manifested in them. When those things shape your identity, we likely drift to abuses, right? How, how do we know this is true? How do we know that, that the blurring of these lines, there's, there's one alpha title that defines the people of God? Well, it happens right at the foot of the cross. I'm probably giving you a bit of my Easter sermon a little too early. But John 19, 25 through 27, it's right behind me. Before his death, his last words, he says this. His people at the foot of the cross. You think about the contrast in the mobs. Those, the mobs, want, those wanting him dead and those grieving the, the fact that he's about to die. He says this, or John tells us this. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother. His mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. That right there is the point we're making. They're not bound by flesh. They're not from the same family. They didn't have the same block they grew up on. They didn't go to the same school. But Jesus says, that doesn't matter. You are now mother and son, son and mother. And I'm going to show you that the authority I give you to do this is when I spill my blood here in a few minutes. That right there, that is the inauguration of the type of family that Luke talks about. That is why we have to be careful to not cheapen this. It's one forged by Jesus' death. And as we move into Easter, it's empowered by his resurrection. It is one dependent upon his grace and power. We have to pray through this and labor through this. It is a covenant family that we get to be a part of on earth. But it, it's one that really it transcends all of time. We will, this will move into eternity. Minus the sin and the problems and the failures. And I want to give you an evidence of this. There's going to be a picture behind me right now. This will, make, this will probably make sense to eight of you here. Last week, um, we had a, a resident, uh, Lars Haglund. Some of you know him, some of you don't. He was with us for the better part of four years, and he moved back to Michigan. And this is a picture um, of the moving, the moving party we had at his house. Now, I want you to see there's six or so people here looking at the back of this pod. There's like another 15 or 20 in the house, all right? And the point I'm showing you here is 
I, I was, uh, you know, picking up boxes and loading boxes. And then I really felt like the Holy Spirit told me to stop for a moment. And he showed me this image in the back of this pod. And it was very convenient because I got to stop lifting boxes too for a moment. It was awesome. But I was looking at this, this image and I saw, and I just pulled my phone out. It's a terrible picture. There's too much sun in it. But represented in this picture is what we're talking about here. From 10 years old to gray haired, every generation of the cosmos is represented in the back of that pod. Helping a guy from Michigan who's not even with us anymore move back to Michigan. He's with us in spirit because we love him as a brother. And this doesn't even account for the other people filling in the gaps in the house. This is it. And I saw this and I thought, hear me. This is not a condemnation about what we're not. This is an exhortation to make sure we continue to be this and we grow into this. It was a beautiful reality of uncommon people uniting around a very common bond. And that is to serve another in the name of Jesus. And it transcended every category that we're supposed to abide by regarding how we build healthy relationship in this world. And it was utterly moving to me. And so when you think of this, think of this in your own life. Do you see this in your life? Do you have those behind you and ahead of you and with you? Do you have a a plurality of this in your life? Because if you don't, it could be a sign of something unhealthy. And if you do, you know just how meaningful it is to have people who have gone ahead of you and those who are behind you and those walking with you to be able to flesh out these ideas. Even a talk like this, how do we we live in community? How do we sort of that spirit? Uh, Then when we leave here, we've got to figure out how to do this, right? Don't do that alone. And so in closing, let me share with you the three greatest symptoms associated with the spiritual illness of self-reliance. And please don't let my brevity here uh, be confused with the lack of importance. Very brief, very important. The first is this. Self-reliance is just a synonym for sowing to the flesh. And so if these rhythms are in your life, you have to ask yourself and God this morning whether or not you have more flesh in your heart right now than need be. The first is an obvious one. I mentioned it last week. You don't read your Bible. When we talk about building ourselves up in Jesus and letting the Holy Spirit work in us, you have to start with what Jesus says about himself. And the way you start knowing about Jesus is by having a passionate affinity to know who he is in Scripture. And this might sound old-fashioned, like, read your Bible. Isn't that what the guy on Sunday is supposed to say every Sunday? Yes, he is supposed to say that. But I want to assure you, the reason we say this all the time is because it's one of the hallmark signs that you've stopped trusting in the power of God. It's one of the hallmark signs, like Paul says, hey, I don't need God's teachings or truth in my life. I got my own. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm a tribe of Benjamin, you know, circumcised on the eighth day. Look at me, so into the flesh, pursuing himself at the expense of God. And that's what a lack of desire to be in the word communicates. What it means is I abide by my own self. I am the vine and the branch in my own life. To shut God out in this area is an ultimate example of self-reliance. And self-reliance means we're sowing to the flesh. That's not to denigrate you as a person or your competency. It's just to say you can't follow the king without the king. So make sure if you want to sow to the spirit and you want to be a fully devoted disciple of Jesus, don't insulate yourself from his truth. You have to desire to walk with God's truth and have him walk with you as you learn it. So if you're not desiring this, be humble and honest before God and just tell him, look, I'm just not here and I don't know why. Help me figure that out. Draw on the community, uh, the power of heaven to help you figure this out. Secondly, you don't pray. Bringing this full circle to what we said last week, you don't pray. And this symptom is similar to the first. The Bible teaches us personal prayer and praying for each other is a powerful tool. And God has given us this to learn a few things. One, it increases our dependency upon him. It has the peculiar effect of reminding a disciple that no matter what we're going through in life, we serve a God who is in control of it. That's why we pray the ACTS paradigm every January. We're reminded, you know, we start with who God is before we ask him to do something with us. Because that changes things. When you start to press into the character of God, it starts to reshape what you see going on in your life. 
you realize you do serve a pretty powerful God who loves you and is for you. When we pray, much like the Bible, you're inviting God to speak into your lives and situations. And so naturally, if you do not communicate with him in this way, it's sort of an offhanded way of saying, I don't really need you in my life. It's a form of self-reliance. It is sowing to the flesh. And it's going to be very hard to be a fully devoted disciple of Jesus if you insulate your life from the voice of God through prayer. Here's the thing. This is not even to say anything about me. You don't get a moment like that in the back of a pod unless you're trying to hear what God is saying. I wasn't even trying to hear God. I was just trying to figure out how to get this done so I could go home and sleep. But those boxes, it was like, it was like he tapped me on the shoulder and said, you should look at this. It's actually pretty cool. And I snapped a shot of that. That receptivity is important. So make sure it's present in your life. And lastly, I would say, and this is the summation of what we talked about today. It's, it's evidence, self-reliance, sowing to the flesh, when you don't value the words of the people whom God has put in your life to walk with you and to be walked with, your church family. This last symptom is kind of like where the equal sign is. If you think about this, if you are not concerned with knowing Jesus' truth, hearing his voice, you are absolutely not going to be concerned with listening to any one of us. It just isn't going to happen. And you are likely not going to be um, caring enough to to be the voice of God for another when they need it. Make no bones about it. We have been designed to live in dependence upon God and one another. And that is not a mark of weakness in Christianity. That is a mark of strength and maturity. One of the main ways you can exercise dependence upon God is ensuring that you have a trustworthy group of friends, CGs, pastors, elders, leaders, whatever it is, and preferably all of the above, whom you have sought the counsel of God through, and that you become that for somebody when they ask it of you. That you are mature enough in Jesus' truth and life to be that voice of care when it is brought to you. The contrary of that is an, it's an evidence of, of a rogue heart. It's a sign of self-reliance. So you can't follow Jesus' truth if you insulate your life from the voice of God's people. They're meant to work in tandem with each other. So no matter where you find yourself today, when it comes to sanctification in the church, that's our topic today, let Jesus speak to it. As we move into our response time, ask yourself, are you really in the word? Are you praying? And are you engaged in people's lives in a meaningful way? One that represents the significance of the blood of Jesus. Or is there something else, something less you are pursuing? Ask yourself when it comes to your life in Christ and the church family, where are you casting your seed? That's your question today. Ask Jesus to help you understand what is he saying to you and what is it that you will begin to do about it as we leave this place this morning. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for, thank you for again, another powerful set of teachings that really illuminate to us the reality of what it means to, to sow to the flesh, excuse me, sow to the spirit in, in, uh, in stark contrast to the flesh. What we see is the further we know you and love you and grow in you, the more likely we are to to invite your presence into our lives and the presence of others in our lives. And I, I, I really believe, God, that that is a foundational element for, for how we become this for the people. I don't know that you can be this for the people unless you've experienced, unless you've tasted that honey in your own heart and life. And so our prayer this morning is that as we talk about these ideas, may the truth and the grace of your Son prevail in all of them. And may this brief time of contemplation and meditation that we have for these next couple of minutes, in this time, I pray, Lord, that we would open our hearts and our minds, that you would bind the enemy from this place, allow us to, in very concrete ways, tune into your voice, hear what you are saying to us, and respond accordingly. And may we know that your words to us 
are meant to be nothing less than the evidence of your love and care that you are for us. So may what we hear today be a, be a driving impetus to become more like your son, Jesus. And that is, we know your ultimate desire for our lives is for us to become more like you. Help us to be that today. Help us to, to, to feel and to know grace in the places where we identify areas of growth and to be humbly affirmed in the places where, where we are doing well. We pray that you would wrap those two ideas up in this small space that we have now of of genuine sanctification. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray this morning. Amen.